AMU. American Military University is proud to present the following podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I am delighted to have Dr. Serena Cosgrove with me this morning. My name is Dr. Elise Carlson Rayner, and I'm an assistant professor of international relations and doctoral faculty with the School of Security and Global Studies. I am delighted to have Dr. Cosgrove this morning to discuss the nexus and connection between gender and conflict. Dr. Cosgrove is an assistant professor of international studies at Seattle University. She currently researches gendered effects of conflict in places such as Guatemala and the Democratic Republic of Congo. She has published extensively on global poverty, human development, and gender-based violence and conflict. She teaches courses such as global poverty, gender development, women in leadership in Latin America, and leadership in organizations. So welcome, Dr. Cosgrove. Dr. Carlson Rayner, thank you for having me into this virtual space today. Yes, welcome. And just to start it off, I just gave a brief background, but you have really extensive knowledge and experience with gender and, and women in conflict. Is there anything more you'd like to add about your background? Just that I do have those two ongoing uh, research projects, one in Guatemala and one in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as well as over the last couple of decades, having carried out international humanitarian assistance in Central America, and then research about some of the civil conflicts that have gone on in the southern cone countries of Chile and Argentina. What classes do you teach? And what are some of your research areas? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I teach courses in general about human rights and security. I teach foreign policy, general international relations, but I do focus on gender and conflict, gender and women in peace negotiations, women in post-conflict agreements and diversity at the peace negotiation table, which we'll talk about more in this podcast. But then just generally, my background is I was a diplomat for 10 years with the U.S. Department of State. I worked on human rights and democracy programs across North Africa and the Gulf, and including in those programs was a focus on women's rights programs in places such as Egypt, Morocco, Bahrain, and other places. So I have kind of the practical application of what this looks like as far as diplomatic programming on women's rights. So I'm thrilled to have you here because I work with students of and scholars of security and global studies. And what I observe is that the issue of gender and conflict is still still a really under-researched area. A lot of people coming out of the military and the security field really kind of are underexposed to the issue of gender and conflict. So I'm thrilled to have a kind of robust conversation with you this morning about that topic. So if we could kind of launch into it, I thought just kind of the umbrella overall topic of having you address how women experience conflict differently. Which is a question that contains so many doctoral dissertations, right? We could be talking about this for days, so the key thing for me is when you ask that question, how women experience conflict differently, what you're doing is you're saying, hey, let's look at a conflict setting with a gender lens. 
So if we apply a gender perspective to looking at what is going on in a conflict setting, and this also becomes really, really relevant for peace negotiations as well as post-conflict settings, the question then is how do men and women or men and women and non-dominant gender identities experience what's going on on the ground in a different way? So that raises the question of what are different gender roles. So one of the things that I'm looking at where I work is what are the gendered expectations of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman? And how does that affect people differently during times of conflict? So if during peace times, Women are expected to take care of the family. If women are expected to take care of elderly people and children, a lot of the research refers to what is a triple workday for women, where they're doing family care work, they're doing community work, and they're doing income generating. So if that's normally what's expected of women, then in times of conflict where there's been destruction to the infrastructure, where social capital or the bonds that connect people within a community have broken down, then how are women supposed to be able to move forward with that triple workday given these new challenges? And so what we see often in conflict settings, and obviously it's going to be different from one place in the world to another, but is that women still remain responsible for keeping families safe, for taking care of communities, as well as then having to take on more and more responsibilities if the state is no longer able to provide things. That's very insightful. And looking specifically at the case study of Congo, I wonder if you could talk about how violence against women during conflict then bleeds into and impacts the post-conflict rebuilding of a society. So one way of looking at it is to ask yourself, hey, what got set in motion during the conflict? So in many Well, particularly in the case of the Congo, one of the ways that the Congolese army and the range of different rebel groups, often what they did during wartime was to use rape as a weapon of war. So as the government soldiers or the rebel soldiers were going in to try to fight their adversaries or try to just get control over territory, they were ordered to show their dominance and control over the situation by raping women and girls and often boys and men as well to show, hey, we are in charge of this territory. Now, that's me still talking about the conflict, right? But one of the things that happens after peace accords are signed is that certain ways of treating people who are seen as not having as much power in a society, say in this case women, then if over a period of conflict men have been ordered to rape women or people who are seen as weaker, 
And that's never been addressed as a human rights abuse. No one has been held accountable for that. Then as people are trying to go back into civilian life, these men then take that back into life, into their normal life. And then certain types of gender-based violence become normalized or become accepted or at least aren't addressed and dealt with. And if you're in a post-conflict setting, that's even harder because chances are probably pretty good that you have a weak state that isn't able to be addressing these issues. Right. And so, you know, I think that flows nicely into the discussion about the international community. When you say if there's a weak state, oftentimes the United Nations is there with a peacekeeping force or African Union or other kind of multinational groups and organizations. How do you see the importance of women at the peace negotiation table for influencing how the post-conflict society is rebuilt and restructured and addressing these social normative issues that have changed over the conflict. You know, it's important what you're saying about involving women in the peace negotiations. With my research focusing on the post-conflict rebuilding, I think one of the things that would be interesting to talk about here is maybe United Nations Resolution 1325 and some of the work that you saw going on in Tunisia. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your research here. Yeah, I'd love to. And and this is what I teach about as well in my courses about why is this important to look at gender? And I try to emphasize with my students and now to the audience today that when you hear things like diversity and gender at the peace negotiation table or in leadership, it's not necessarily for an altruistic sense of, oh, we just need different faces on our board or we just need different faces at the table. It actually leads to demonstrated differences in policy and outcome. So for example, there's developing research, especially from the Council on Foreign Relations, that really demonstrates the importance of women and diversity, you know, so diversity of ethnic diversity, religious diversity at the peace negotiating table that shows that if you have this diversity there, it will lead to a better peace negotiation that will be more sustainable, more long-lasting, more comprehensive that will get the nuances, the diversity of society that traditionally kind of elite men of a society have negotiated in the past. I did, in fact, write my master's thesis on UN Resolution 1325. And sometimes my students say, what about 1324? You know, it sounds such a random number. But I want students to really memorize this one, the UN Resolution 1325 that number, that resolution, it really changed international affairs. It was from the Security Council. It demonstrated from the international community, from a security lens, recognized that there's a disproportionate impact of violent conflict and war on women and girls. Connecting that then to the resolution of conflict, that women need to play a vital role in conflict resolution, peacemaking, and peace building. So this UN Security Council resolution has been integrated into all signatory governments. And so, for example, students can look up how the Department of Defense has integrated 
recommendations from UN Resolution 1325 of where women should be, of how they should be integrated into the policy discussions. And by where, I mean in what committees and what agencies and what leadership positions and what roles in the military in a post-conflict zone that the leadership and Department of Defense needs to be aware of. And this isn't just a tacit awareness, but this is a explicit expectation. So Dr. Cosgrove, I appreciate that you brought up the example of Tunisia. This is a very memorable moment for me in my diplomatic work that in post-revolution Tunisia, Secretary of State Clinton was arriving to Tunis for kind of beginning conversations of post-revolution Tunisia. It became known pretty quickly that she was going to be met across the table by only men. And she halted the discussions. She halted even coming. She made it very clear that it was an expectation of her leadership of the U.S. government to meet with counterparts, also have women at the table. And again, this is in their ministry of labor, their foreign ministry, their ministry of education, you know, not just the counterparts directly with her secretary of state foreign minister counterpart, but throughout the government. And so, for example, in her leadership, she would raise the full rights of women. She raised it with the president, the prime minister, and really elevated women's rights as a policy priority on par with other U.S. foreign policy priorities. This was revolutionary at the time. Women's rights and human rights in general has really only infiltrated or been on par with U.S. foreign policy really since World War II, but significantly since the Carter administration. And not just the United States. This really comes out of the post-World War II when Europe had collapsed and was coming out of the vestiges of this horrible conflict. Leaders started to realize we need to address domestic practices of how leaders, or frankly dictators in that case, are treating their own people. Because when we have genocide, it can lead to regional and international instability. So what became known specifically for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, it became known as the Hillary Doctrine. She was the first Secretary of State to declare that the subjugation of women worldwide is a serious threat to U.S. national security. So making that correlation was, again, really new in foreign policy and international relations, that when women have equal rights, it leads to an entire nation's stability and security and overall prosperity. Wow, Dr. Carlson Rayner, I think that that is so important for a number of reasons. Going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, about the fact that in many countries, women are responsible for keeping families safe in times of conflict, trying to either internally displaced or getting to refugee camps. And then you're talking about the importance of women participating at the negotiation tables. It brings me to thinking about the important role that women can end up playing in peace building processes. I'm thinking about both the work I've been doing in the Congo and in Guatemala in Central America. 
where you have folks where on so many levels, you could just think, oh, these are folks that are marginalized because they have multiple social identities that are going to be intersecting to exacerbate their marginalization, such as gender. So in this case, women coming from a non-dominant tribal identity, for example, or they're internally displaced or refugees, again, meaning that they have less access to resources and what I have seen, though, is, is that the moment that international organizations or local organizations are working and accompanying folks, especially that are challenged either by how they've suffered during the war or are marginalized because of their social identities, but if you start working with them, accompanying them, providing them with access to training, maybe even credit or small loans, that one of the things that you can see is how folks who have been even targeted and have suffered under violence can start turning those experiences around working in community and starting to really think about, hey, how can I contribute to my society right here in front of me? The young women that I've been working with in Goma, in the eastern part of the Congo, young women who are survivors of gender-based violence and often rape and have small children and have been shunned by their families, all of a sudden who you would think would be the most excluded and the most vulnerable now are becoming some of the strongest voices advocating for a more accountable and responsible state who are really working on reaching out to primary and secondary students about, hey, let's be rethinking gender roles and how we treat women. What you get a sense of is is actually a vibrant, what could be a vibrant piece of democracy and some real signs of hope. I've seen that same thing in Guatemala, where you have really high levels of gender-based violence in this current time, part of which is due to some of the violence that was uh, normalized during the war. But again, what you see is women working together to really try to change some of the cultural, political, and economic obstacles that they face. And then I go, oh, this is why it makes sense to be involving women, both in terms of ending conflict, but also in terms of thinking, hey, how do we move forward? Oh, it's fascinating and really unique and rare, frankly, to have that kind of this primary source reference to Goma, like you said, in the Congo and Guatemala and these places that have been very, very conflict ridden and also very difficult to go in as the outsider and a researcher. And so I wonder if you could give kind of a more specific, what does this look like on the ground, you know, especially Congo? Can you describe that more of what does this look like to have young girls who are survivors of rape and having children, what are they specifically targeting for changing their society? And then how are you seeing them do this? I think that your question is really important because if we locate ourselves in a particular context and we analyze what's happened, and then we see what folks who on some level are so vulnerable, but what are they doing to contribute? I'm just thinking of the young women that are served by the Congolese non-governmental organization that I've been working with over the years. It's called HOLD, DRC, or the Humanitarian Organization for Lasting Development in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. 
One of the things that I've seen where first the NGO hold was reaching out to work with young women just to get them some training so that maybe they could generate some income. But then what they started to talk to me about was their efforts to educate themselves and contribute to the development of their communities. So I was hearing things at first where a young teenage mother would say, hey, at first I was very discouraged before I shut myself in my room and had no friends. Now I can stand in front of people and speak up. I have learned how to live with people. Or uh, another young woman saying, no man can trick me anymore. I have learned things. And that this resiliency and fortitude then is propelling them into becoming community leaders and being in contact with the directors of schools, the pastors of different churches in their community saying, hey, we need to be talking about women and women's rights, and we need to be holding our government accountable. So again, gives me great hope. Again, I see similar things in Guatemala, in the central part of the country, a town of Solola, just above Lake Atitlan, a young group of indigenous Kakchikel women, so indigenous Maya, working together to say, hey, you ask our mothers and our grandmothers what it means to be a woman, and they say, oh, it's a woman's lot in life to suffer. And these young women are saying, hey, there are so many amazing things about our culture that we want to preserve, but maybe we want to rethink that thing about women's roles just being to suffer. And so what I've seen with these young women is, hey, I want to be a social worker. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a teacher. I want to be an engineer. And I want to be able to be part of the development of my community. And I want to do this through the greater inclusion of women. That's where you all of a sudden you start seeing, hey, maybe some of these countries that we've thought of as, oh, they're going to be stuck in this war is not over, even when it's over phase for way too long, all of a sudden you start thinking, hey, maybe there's more hope than I might have anticipated. Such interesting points. And I think of the idea there that Women, and again, we can even talk more about non-traditional gender identities, LGBT groups, how they evaluate their society. Often conflict can be centrally about if it's a fight for a nation state or if it's a conflict of breaking up a state. You know, it's often making these divisions of ethnic identities or religious identities. And inherently in that is a defining of who we are as a nation, And so, again, I teach um, nationalism and identity, and there's some really interesting and important work about gender and nationalism, where, for example, the Kurdish movement, there's a lot of Kurdish women's organizations that are saying, we are part of this movement for self-actualization and for gaining our own nation state, advocating to the United Nations and international community. We are part of that movement of the ultimate goal of having a nation state at the same time. We are fighting to redefine what it means to be Kurdish, namely to reevaluate and challenge these patriarchal norms. For example, so-called honor crimes are very prevalent at high rates in the Kurdish community. And just general gender-based violence is still very high in the Kurdish community. And so women's rights groups, uh, Kurdish groups are saying, 
we want to solidify our national identity, fight for a nation state, at the same time, challenge patriarchal norms and challenge and evolve and reform who we are as a people. Which is such an inspiration and I think is something that as scholars are looking at how do people with marginalized identities in conflict and post-conflict societies, how are they affected? Maybe the question we need to be asking is how can we be supporting their empowerment and their inclusion? Because I think it's a big contribution to peace and to democracy building, having folks from marginalized identities being able to participate. And look, here they are claiming it. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That when you're looking at security, when you're looking at conflict and warfare and post-warfare, you need to look at all of your society. You need to address what is post-conflict going to look like for all marginalized groups, for the elite and for the most vulnerable, where it's really important for the field of security studies to understand that security does not just mean warfare and open conflict, but the United Nations lists seven types of human security challenges. So economic, food security, health, environmental, personal, community, and political security. This represents a development in our scholarship, in the literature, and really understanding of the comprehensive nature of security. Where, for example, in any society, you know, if a woman in Sudan, say, for example, fears getting raped when she collects her necessary firewood each day, that's not a secure environment. That's not a peaceful society, even though her country may be deemed as a post-conflict zone. I'm giving the example of Sudan, but you can make that example in a lot of places. And so, you know, maybe you can just end on final thoughts of why it's important to look at security and gender security in a more diverse understanding. Thanks for setting this up and challenging us to think a little bit deeper about what does human security mean. And for me, human security is deeply connected, yes, obviously to human development. And how I talk about that in my work is I use Amartya Sen's capabilities approach. So what is it that people need to have a life that they choose where they get to flourish in this lifetime? And what are those capabilities? And for those of us that work in conflict zones or former conflict zones, I think the thing is, is to have some sensitivity to what are some of these diminished capabilities and think beyond just some of the more urgent capabilities, but start looking for capabilities such as affiliation and participation and being able to participate in society, even if one comes from a marginalized group. It was so great to have you here this morning, Dr. Cosgrove. I just really appreciate your time and sharing your insights about Guatemala and Congo and this really important relationship between gender and conflict and understanding these diverse dynamics and sharing your insights about the important topic of gender and conflict. 
Dr. Carlson Rayner, thank you for having me. And hey, this just makes me think about our students and folks who are committed to trying to make the world a better place and how we can rebuild after war and how we can accompany people as they're wanting to participate in their societies. And may this podcast and our work with our students and our students' future work be part of making this world a better place. Thank you. Wonderful. I appreciate your time. Thanks again. Well, thank you to the audience as well. Thank you for listening. I hope you'd enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Cosgrove and myself, Dr. Elise Carlson Rayner. And we hope to have many more conversations like this. Have a great day. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.